It's awesome to be here. Good morning, Good everybody. Morning. This is great. We got the legend, John Legend. <laughs> and we got Jim Lowry. I'm Kobe. And we are going to take the next 30 minutes to tackle some very serious topics. We're going to talk about diversity and inclusion in today's corporate America. We're going to talk about the importance of focusing on bigger issues in this country like criminal justice reform. But first, we're going to talk about mentorship. We're going to talk about the importance of mentorship in regards to how we just build as a community and also how that results in us building better relationships as people. So John, I want to start with you first. Yeah. Can you talk about how your relationship with Jim evolved? Well, um, as he said when he introduced me, I started my post-college life at the Boston Consulting Group. So uh, I worked there for three years and I was in the Boston office first and then I moved to New York. But um, right around the time when I started working there, there was this new partner that had come in uh, to the Chicago office. He had had his own consultancy and built up a huge reputation and a huge client base. And he was going to come to BCG to bring all of his wisdom, all of his network, um, and all of his power to sell to clients to BCG. And his name was Jim Lowry. And I heard about him before I actually met him. He was already legendary as soon as he got there. Just uh, such a magnetic personality, a dynamic personality. And I got assigned to a couple of cases that uh, he was working on. And also he came to help um, BCG think about how to diversify uh, their consultant ranks and, and uh, get more uh, black and brown partners uh, moving up the ranks and things of that nature. And so uh, we interacted in various ways, both through uh, kind of our diversity cohort, but also through specific cases for clients. And he became a mentor, a very good friend, and we've been friends ever since. And um, when you have a mentor like Jim, you learn so much just from being around him. You um, connect to so many other people because of all the connections that he has. And uh, I couldn't imagine my life without him being a part of it. Well, now Jim, can you talk a little bit about best practices in mentorship? Something I know you really like to preach and educate people on. Yeah, but you know, I first gotta say, you know, thank thank you, John, for saying all those wonderful things about me. But but it was an easy easy match because when I first met John, I knew who he was, I knew what he he stood for, I did his homework on his background, and I said, this is the kind of person I want to mentor. Hmm. And I think it's very very important as we share, you know, there's a responsibility for people like like myself to be a mentor. Uh, so I always tell them, like I told him like 20 years ago. Uh, be yourself, be strong, take chances, get around people who have done it well, and be the best that you can be yeah. in whatever field you're going to be. Uh, but I also say to many of my mentees, be a good mentee. Mm -hmm. Too often the mentee just takes it for granted that if you have it and you're going to, you know, you should share it. And it's not like that. So I said, one of the things you got to do, and that's how we've been close, we, don't, we respect each other's time and our space, but he has been a great, great mentee. 
and he's, he's helping so many other people, and I'm so proud of you for doing that. Amazing. Now, I want to talk a little bit about your early days at McKinsey. First black consultant, and the power of peer mentorship and having someone else there with you to navigate some of those complex situations. And I know there was the next black consultant hired, Bob Holland, who was a real key ally for you. So can you talk about the power of that peer group you were able to assemble? Yeah, it's, it's very powerful. And I think we have to put it in the context. We were talking about in the 60s. We were talking about late 60s. So I was the first black at, at uh, McKinsey. And I think we both went in and said, we can't fail. Uh, there are too many people that we have to bring up and bring behind, behind us. So in the first year, I recruited 19 other black people to, to then because I was there by myself. So Bob and I were like a cadre of two. Mm -hmm. And we, every night we would uh, go to a bar or somewhere and say, what is this place like? We had to learn the culture. And for two guys, you know, it was very difficult. I mean, we didn't, we didn't go to Harvard. We didn't go to Stanford. We didn't go to Wharton. And at that time, all the, all the McKinsey people went to those three schools. Yeah. That was it. Oh. So we had to help each other. Now, early days for you at BCG, I know you also had a good peer network and Jim as your mentor. And you were balancing the dynamics of being a BCG while performing yeah. nights and weekends. So how, how did that work? Because so I was making PowerPoint slides by day. That's right. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's right. <laughs> I was in the studio and playing at local clubs in New York at night. And, uh, you know, talking about collaboration, talking about mentoring, um, I met a, a young guy from Chicago who happened to be the cousin of my roommate. And um, his name was Kanye West. I think you guys might have heard of him. <laughs> um, but he was an up and coming producer at the time and wanted to be known as a rapper as well, but he wasn't really getting recognized as that at that moment. But uh, his cousin, uh, Devon, who is a good friend of mine still, uh, and went to Penn with me and, and we were roommates in New York, uh, he said, you, you guys should collaborate. <laughs> and you know, you could say he was my mentor, he's a little bit older than me and, and had a little bit more experience in the music business, but I think like Jim was saying, a lot of times any kind of mentor-mentee relationship is, it needs to be collaborative for mm -hmm. it to be productive for both of you. And you need to have something to offer to the relationship even if yep. you're the less experienced person. And for me, I could offer my musicianship, my ability to sing, my ability to co-write with him. And then he was making great beats and he could yep. offer that for me and he was making a lot of context in the business and he could offer that to me as well. And so uh, we both had something that we could help each other with yeah. and uh, we were able to grow together. And I think uh, most of the best mentor-mentee relationships are those where uh, even if it's not equal power, uh, both of you are contributing something yeah. significant to the relationship. Yeah. Got it. Now I want to switch, switch gears a little bit and talk about how to create inclusive cultures. And there's a very powerful concept that you've mentioned to me and you write in your upcoming book about the timing of a smile. Something hmm. that was inspired by you observing very powerful, successful executives like Ken Chenault and others. Could you share that with the, the room here? Yeah, I, you know, Ken and I have had a long relationship. I remember Ken was a manager at American Express and I've watched his career and he was my client on several occasions, but I watched him very closely and Vernon Jordan and 
and Franklin Thomas and people like that. And I noticed that he never laughed. He never laughed, you know? And I've always said that, you know, when people of color walks into a room or is in any kind of relationship, certain people make certain assumptions and, and, and have quick opinions. And I think Ken was very guarded and he, didn't, he never laughed. And what he would do was smile at the appropriate time. By smiling at the appropriate time, it gave him the comfort of being an equal in that relationship. Because I say in the book, and, and people probably take me to task, right? but I said, if you laugh too much, people don't take you seriously. If you don't laugh at all, people feel threatened. And Ken had it, and he's had it throughout his life. Oh. Very important. Right. Now, I want to now switch over to all the amazing work that you're doing, John, the guards to criminal justice reform, free America. Can you share with the group here, your nonprofit, and just all the real key problems you're tackling with that organization? Well, let me set the context first. Uh, America is the most incarcerated country in the world. We spend billions and billions of dollars every year to uh, put people in cages. We use that money um, and we keep using that money in lieu of investing in the resources that these communities need to uh, grow, to rehabilitate from uh, drug issues, to heal from mental health issues. Um, and it's a problem that I've seen up close and personal in my own family, in my own community. And it's a problem that I've read extensively about. And I decided I was angry enough and passionate enough about the subject that I wanted to do something. So uh, with my team, we formed an organization called Free America. And we started it particularly as a campaign where we would go around and listen and learn about the issue. We didn't just want to come in and say, here's what we think should be done. We said, let's go out and listen to the communities who are affected. I've been personally affected, but I wanted to hear from other people around the country, other activists, um, uh, other stakeholders, from prosecutors to public defenders, from people who are currently in prison to their families, people who were uh, victims and survivors of crime. Uh, we wanted to hear from all of them and start thinking about what we could do to use my voice, use my platform to uh, make a change. So we started this listening and learning campaign and we really did listen and we really did learn. We visited prisons, we visited immigration detention facilities, uh, we visited uh, state legislatures around the country and we started to identify um, activists around the country that were grassroots um, that were doing interesting things and, and proposing really important changes in their state and local governments that would really move the needle in, on this issue. Um, and we started to get involved. We started to weigh in uh, once we identified some of the key issues that we cared about. One of the key issues is prosecutor reform. So um, a lot of people aren't aware that um, most prosecutors are elected around the country uh, and they have a lot of power. Uh, a lot of times prosecutors run unopposed or with only token opposition, but they have a lot of power in your community and they can decide whether or not to charge someone, they can decide uh, what kind of charge they're gonna go for, whether to overcharge or to uh, undercharge or whatever, uh, and, and uh, their discretion, because most cases don't go to trial, their discretion actually um, rules the day when it comes to how the outcome of the case is going to be decided in most cases. So it's really critical that we know who our prosecutors are and that we elect people who are progressive and 
have great values and understand that justice isn't necessarily locking people, more people up for a longer time. It's uh, striking that right balance between keeping the community safe, but also thinking about um, how we invest our resources and what the best way to make our community safer is. And a lot of times it's not locking people up. So anyway, we've gotten involved in a lot of prosecutorial elections around the country, including in Chicago where Jim lives, uh, in uh, Florida, in Los Angeles, um, all over the country we've gotten involved in these races and backed more progressive prosecutors and most of them have won and, and that's been an exciting thing. We've also gotten involved in um, ballot initiatives like Prop 47 here in California that uh, reduced six felonies down to misdemeanors and freed a lot of people from prison who are currently there and also changed a lot of people's uh, criminal records, downgraded those felonies to misdemeanors, making it easier for them to get jobs. Uh, and then we got involved with uh, Amendment 4 in Florida, which was one of the biggest things we've ever done uh, with the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Their goal was to reinstate the voting rights of people who had been convicted of felonies. Uh, 1.5 million people got the right to vote because that amendment passed. And that was a major big deal. We got involved in New York uh, with bail reform and other criminal justice reform package there that just passed. And these are all big initiatives. Uh, a lot of people think so much about federal elections and who's a president, who's their congressperson, who's their senator. But most of the criminal justice decisions are made on the state and local level. Most people who are locked up are locked up in state and local prisons and jails. And so we've gotten very involved with state and local organizations to change these laws. And we've freed a lot of people. We've helped a lot of people. And then just to tie it back to mentorship, uh, one of the things we've done in partnership with Bank of America uh, and New Profit was to found this organization called Unlocked Futures. So Unlocked Futures is an organization that thought about ways we could help people who were formerly incarcerated and affected by the criminal justice system, help them become entrepreneurs. So we uh, take applications, uh, of people who are running uh, interesting nonprofits or for-profit ventures in this area. We want to help them, give them mentorship, uh, funding, uh, connections with all of our network and help them get their organizations to the next level. And that's been extremely rewarding for us and, uh, and one of the most powerful things we've done. It's awesome, it's really good. That's why I love this guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's why I love him. You know, <laughs> this is my man. <laughs> now, Jim, I want to switch gears a little bit to you, and you lay out a ten-point plan for Black economic development in your upcoming book, which I thought was extremely powerful. Could you, as succinctly yeah. as possible, go through? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do it succinctly, <laughs> succinctly, because I think it, I'm going to, and I, I'll do it very, very quickly. <laughs> But I think the, the key point on why we're, we're focusing on that is if we look at the numbers in the black community, we're going backwards. Yep. The Pew Institute household net worth in 1983-2015, net worth increased in the white community 42% from 100,000 to 141,000. Hispanic net worth in the household increased 40%, 9,800 to 13,000. In the African-American net worth household decreased 
from 13,000 to 11,000. So if you look at those statistics and you look at the west side and south side of Chicago, you're seeing we have serious problems, economic problems. So that instead of just crying discrimination or whatever and expecting the government to do everything, we got to create major, major businesses in our own community. So the 10 points, I will say it very quickly and I won't, <laughs> I won't embellish in any of them. One, black leaders must accept those who control capital, control the country. I think conceptually within our leadership, we've never understood or appreciate the value of capital, capitalism and the free enterprise system. And because we didn't embrace it, we went the other directions and many of our leaders went that way too. Working to, working collectively, we must create, and I'm serious about this, as many black billionaire companies in America. My dream before I die, and then like King, is to say, I played a part in creating $10 billion black companies in 10 cities. And assuming if we did that, the impact those companies could have on, on the community's low incomes. We should support and select, this is what John has been doing, officials who work on our behalf. Too often in our community, we elect people because they look good, they are very articulate, or they went to the same fraternity or sorority. The hell with that. We have to start having a metric. Every elected official, irrespective of race, gender, or anything, what they did in that community. What is the metric? What was the impact, economic impact? And I think that one of the things we have not done in the past that we have to do. Five, high we have to invest and pool our capital, getting back to this crowd, to buy properties. And gentrification is not going away. And it, it's gonna happen. The key question we have to ask ourselves is, how can blacks and Hispanics be a part of that and benefit from that? And how do we pool our money to be investors with other people who are going to Detroit or going to the south side of Chicago and be a part of positive effect? If we're not doing that. That was five. I'm talking very quickly now, Kobe. <laughs> I see you looking at me funny, okay? You got it. You're right, you're right. Okay, six. I'm not gonna rush you. <laughs> we, we must increase the number of blacks on corporate boards. But I do add this. Just having a number doesn't mean any difference. Mm -hmm. And I could give you examples of very outstanding board members who made amazing contributions to the company, to the shareholders, and represent people of color in the right way. I am not for putting somebody on the board who just happens to be black and can't define the word diversity. So I think that's important. Seven, and this is gonna be hard, but I think we can do it. We have to form, and John, when you first started, you, you subsidize a village in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. We don't think about Africa. Some of the wealthiest people in the world are in Africa. Dangote is one of the wealthiest people. So we have to form strategic relationships with influential and global black leaders. It's very important, the diaspora is there. The other thing which is sometimes very difficult for us to do, we should support only nonprofits who are effective, efficient, and have impact. Same kind of thing with our elected officials. We can't just elect, take people and give money because they're nice people and nonprofits. We have to make the nonprofits work for us. Nine, conduct research. I think as a group, as a community, we don't do enough. You people have done so well because you've researched entrepreneurs, you research industries, you, you research trends. We have been reluctant, especially in a, uh, historically black colleges, to really analyze business economic development in a way to make it. I was embarrassed to see how few of those academic programs had even classes on business, on capitalism. Yep. You know? And the tenth one, 
which would probably be, and John, you're going to have to help me because you got more juice. The tenth one I put out is we got to stop fighting like crabs in a barrel. If we don't help each other, and that's one of the things I wrote for in a report for Kaufman, I was so proud of what I deemed, and it was probably inappropriate, the hip hop generation, because John's generation and the people in his fields are collaborating, like he said, with Kanye, and they're making money together. We have to take it beyond just that yeah. in, the, in the entertainment business and make it to the larger black community. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was succinct. <laughs> <laughs> now, John, just piggybacking on that a little bit, can you talk about how some of the work you're doing in philanthropy is really focused on race in America? It may expand a little bit on some of your activities. Well, I, I think everything, um, there's so much um, that afflicts the black community that is driven from uh, our original sin as a country, which was slavery and, and the, uh, the fact that slavery kind of um, uh, solidified a caste system in America um, that still persists to this day. Yep. Um, because being black was uh, intrinsically connected to being unfree, being uh, used as, uh, as a, a uh, as uh, enslaved labor, uh, the, the entire nation's uh, infrastructure and, and foundation uh, is in, infused with that uh, yeah. caste system. And so uh, we have a lot of work to do to, to end that. And you still see it when you see housing segregation, mm -hmm. uh, when you see uh, school segregation. Our schools are more segregated now than they were in the 60s and 70s, uh, which is insane. Because uh, as much as we talk about gentrification and, and folks you know, uh, living in the same neighborhoods in so many, in so many places, uh, our schools are more segregated than ever uh, since, since you know, after Brown versus Board of, Board of Education. Uh, so these are issues that we're stealing, still dealing with as a nation. And of course, we have a president that has taken things backwards with not only his rhetoric, but his policies. Um, but we as a nation, a lot of these decisions are made on a local level, you know, uh, and folks have to uh, even examine their own practices when it comes to uh, what kind of schools uh, they send their kids to. And are they, uh, a lot of um, cities are, 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 are breaking apart because white folks don't want their kids to go to school with black kids. Uh, these things are happening in 2020, 2019. Um, these are things we have to deal with as a nation, and until we deal with them, uh, there's still going to be these persistent issues. And when the black community is hurting, it's not just the black community that sure. hurts. Sure. Uh, the whole city hurts when the black community is hurting. Uh, the whole country hurts. Yeah. Now, 2020, real pivotal year in this country. Can you share with us some words of optimism and of hope and things that people in this room could be thinking about as we are really trying to make this world a better place? Well, I think 2020 is a critical year for democracy because if we want this nation to continue as a, as a democracy that, that represents the people's interests, that, uh, that um, isn't uh, drifting toward author authoritarianism, 
that is inclusive, um, this election is everything. It's so critical. And not just presidential. I think we get so caught up in the presidential. That's obviously very important. Obviously very important. Uh, <laughs> however, like I was talking about before with criminal justice, even with education policy, so many of these things because of our federalist system are, um, are decided on a state and local level. And so we have to be very mindful of who our state and local elected officials are. And democracy only works if we own it. Um, it's a beautiful, powerful system if we're informed, if we're engaged, if we're voting, but not just voting, following up, holding politicians accountable uh, for what they promised they were going to do. Um, all of these things matter. Our uh, capitalist system doesn't survive if our democracy doesn't survive. Yeah. Our education system doesn't survive if our democracy doesn't survive. Our, none of these systems work if our democracy is not healthy, yeah. if our democracy is not informed and engaged. And um, 2020 needs to be a year when we fight for the survival of our democracy. Now, I didn't want to rush you on this last question, so I'm giving okay. you proper time. You shared with me a 10-point, you like your 10 points, but a 10-point plan and recommendation to the next generation for how we can actually architect a global transformation for a better tomorrow. And I'd love for you to be able to share those 10 points as we close out. Yeah, this was in my next to last chapter. My last chapter is what John was saying was, the reasons I will not quit, as old as I am, I will still stay in the fight because it is like John said, it's not about just black people, it's not about Hispanic people, it's about the stability of our country and as long as I can play a role. But I, I was so moved when all the kids got together after the, you know, the shooting, the mass shooting in Florida and had that tremendous, tremendous event in D.C. and people of all different colors and races and ages and, and as depressed as I was about a lot of things, I said, there's the hope. There's the hope. And so I did dedicate a chapter to the next generation, and I listed these 10 things. Vote for and support politicians who believe in what you believe in, what John said. Embrace, embrace the U.S. free enterprise system and make it even better. Train yourselves and others to be invaluable assets to the new global technological economy. And one of the reasons I'm here is technology is gonna control the world. You are part of it, you're making it, you're the leaders in it. We just have to get more young people in it in a positive way. Four, be bold and think big. And I remember telling him that in year 99. I said, your, your talents are gonna take you so high, but more importantly, your brand is going to be bigger, and his brand is bigger, and I'm so proud of you mm -hmm. for what you represent. Invest in one activity in a field of your choosing and be the best you can be. Six, have the passion to be a change agent. Uh, this great country was built on people who were change agents, not just civil rights movement, but anybody who wanted to do things differently and better. Then I say, accept the wisdom of those who have, meaning, who have had meaningful journeys. There are people out there who want to help the younger generation. Mm -hmm. You have to reach out, if you're a young person, to those people and they will share with you. Eight, join hands with the people all over the world 
and appreciate the cultural differences because they are different. People in Africa, even people in South America, the different people in, people in Uruguay are very different from the people in Brazil. And we have to understand that and appreciate that. Nine, I know it'd be difficult for the younger generation, but delay instant gratification and enjoy every milestone along your journey. And then 10, accept that there will be those who will oppose you. Fight them fairly with collaboration, well thought, well thought out plans, and a very, very positive middle attitude. Those are my 10. Guys, I know we're pretty much close to running out of time. John, I know you're headed to Dubai <laughs> pretty I shortly am. after this. So yeah. really appreciate you rearranging your schedule, I know, to, to make this happen. And I'm so happy to have been here. I'm <laughs> so excited to have spent some time with you all. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and, and it's Jim. always good to hang out with Jim Lowry. <laughs> but this, when I remember met him, he was playing piano. And he was this quiet guy in the corner. I said, who's that guy? This is John Stevens. And he's playing the piano and he started playing around. <laughs> and he said, you know, I think I, I want to be a consultant, but I want to also be, a, a, you know, somebody talent. I said, John, do whatever you want to do. But remember, there ain't going to be too many people in your field who have an Ivy League degree. So remember that brand, remember where you come, use your skills that you learn at Penn and make the world difference. And when he was listed, and I'm gonna say this, when he was listed on Time Magazine's one of the most hundred, <laughs> most influential people in the world, I said, you know, I, I know his parents to take more credit, but I remember that conversation. I'm so <laughs> proud of it. <laughs> thank you so much, both of you. Everyone, right. let's give a round of applause to- Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.